The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, with a great show for you today because I got a great guest. He's a friend of mine and one of my business partners. That's right. Todd Thurman, proprietor, founder of Swine Techs. He's a livestock efficiency consultant, has worked all over the world, lived in Russia for two years, tra- used to travel to China the way like you might drive to the local uh, grocery store. The guy's been around. He's got a lot of good stuff to share. He's also my partner in the Business of Agriculture Success Group. That is a networking organization where we put together two monthly Zoom meetings and share Dialogue insights information about the business of agriculture and the future and how you can succeed in tomorrow's agriculture. It's a great organization that Todd and I teamed up with uh, to start putting on uh, back in September, and we still are the hosts of it. So if you'd like to be a part of the business of agriculture success group, I encourage you to send me an email or a message and however you want to get it to me and we'll get you signed up for $99 a month. You get a lot of usable, useful information and a network of other professionals. So Todd Thurman, Welcome to the Business of Agriculture Success Group. You're my business partner. And I'll say that about many people. You're my business partner and a special returning guest because you've been on my podcast multiple times. Thanks for having me. And why don't you go ahead and share with our listeners what your dear mother, your dear mother said after listening to the last episode you were on with me last year. Well, let's say that she's not a huge fan of yours, but I think she's warming up. So here's another opportunity for you to uh, appeal to Tazma. <laughs> you know what? I can tell your mother, she's not the only mother of my friends and certainly of, of the girlfriends I used to have that's not a big fan. Somehow this just happened. All right. So we're talking about a topic that I think everybody here can relate to. We're talking about population. We're talking about realities of population as it impacts our industry. So if you're saying, man, I saw the headline that this episode is about the population and the realities, what we're going to talk about is stuff that you've probably not heard unless you keep up with some of our stuff, my stuff, because it's counter to what you've always heard. The reality is we're not going to be overpopulated. We're not going to run out of food. We're not going to have people, uh, you know, uh, 12 or 15 or 30 billion people in addition to the 7 billion we have right now. These are realities that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about specifically what it means to you and your business. So, Todd, did I adequately set up the topic for these people? Yeah, I think that's great. You know, not only are some of those things not true, the exact opposite is actually true. So the 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 problems that people have been talking about with too big a population, we're actually going to have some some issues with the opposite problem and essentially having not enough people. So, yeah, I think it's important to, to shine some light on this topic. Yeah, so the the uh, if you're saying, all right, Damien, in the first two minutes, tell me what you and Todd are, are covering. It's realities of population globally and here in North America, where most of our listeners come from. The fact that we're not going to be overpopulated. The fact that everything you've been told, feed the world, feed the world, make as many bushes as you can. We ain't going to have enough food. Not really true. Actually, it's not even true right now. We 
basically have enough uh, food production right now. It's just a matter of distribution economics. And then the big one that Todd's going to get into is what does it mean for the actual work? The actual work. Remember, we have a very foreign-born agricultural labor force right now. Foreign-born, meaning they are not from the United States or Canada. If you happen to be in one of those two countries, what's it mean for that? So that's what Todd's going to cover. Before we hop into that, I want to remind you, Business of Agriculture podcast has two wonderful sponsors. You heard about the first one, Land Trust, during the recorded intro. I want to tell you about the other one that's been with me for a very long time. A company founded by my buddy Nick Horob. It's called Harvest Profit, a software solution that will help your agricultural enterprise be what it is supposed to be, and that is profitable. Software designed specifically for the agricultural industry for your enterprise. Manage all your inflows, outflows. Go to harvestprofit.com to get a free 14-day trial to see if this could be an answer and a solution for you. All right, Todd, tell them what happened last week that really decided made you and I decide that we're going to do this. We had a special guest on with our Business of Agriculture Success Group, the author of Empty Planet, Daryl Bricker. Real quickly, what did we discuss and then what were a few of the big subjects we said we've got to take this to the podcast? I think the interesting thing about Daryl's perspective is the way he frames the discussion around what he calls vertical knowledge. And vertical knowledge are those things that we absolutely know to be true that are not true, right? And so those can obviously, for fairly obvious reasons, can be kind of dangerous uh, assumptions that we make. And I think, you know, Daryl's book, uh, another book that kind of challenged the, the status quo uh, thought process called Factfulness, and, and a lot of people read that. And it's a, an interesting book to kind of challenge your, your worldview on a lot of topics, but one of the main topics that, that he addressed in, in that book, Factfulness, was, was very similar to uh, some of Daryl's analysis in terms of, of population dynamics and, and really started sounding the alarm that what we were hearing from the UN in terms of, you know, the population is going to continue to grow. And that's the, you know, a big challenge for the environment and for the food system and, and all these different things. Um, it, you know, it, we're really starting to see where, you know, Daryl talked about uh, being, uh, you know, attacked in some cases for his views. We're starting to see the tide shift and, and more of the mainstream scientific community coming around to this idea. And, you know, one of the things that precipitated our discussion of the business of agriculture success group was the, the Lancet study that was uh, published uh, fairly recently and then discussed in an article on Science Daily that really started to kind of turn the ship around and say, okay, well, maybe we're not going to get to, you know, 12 billion or, or even 16 billion, I think is the upper end of the official UN uh, estimates that we're really talking about something, you know, much closer to maybe 9 billion or even less. And so obviously those are huge differences. I think it's probably good. You and I keep up a bit more than, you know, we got folks that listen to this, uh, Todd, that are, you know, in cranberry processing business or something. And, and, uh, and they don't maybe keep up with the, some of the finer numbers that you and I do. Right now, today, in the world, there's 7.7 to 7.8 billion people. Okay, we're shy of 8 billion. And uh, why these things matter is that we gained about two of those billion, really, just in the last 25, 30 years. But we haven't gained a whole hell of a lot in the last few years. So what we're seeing is challenges, again, that vertical knowledge. I'm 51 years old and, you know, Todd's a little younger than me. And, and so, uh, and, and we're talking about how we've heard our whole lives. Oh, 
people starving in Africa. You got you know, eat your applesauce or starving kids in Asia. And then it, which of course doesn't change the fact there's still starving kids in Asia, whether your American kid eats applesauce or not, is one that's going to change that. But that's completely, it's a matter of agricultural economics and distribution economics. But anyway, we've been hearing about the starving for a long time. The reality is we took a bunch of starving people off the rolls in the last 20 years because of global economics advancing. The more advanced you become economically and the more you get educated, the less you breed. These are real things. It's not me judging it. Todd can back this up. All the data proves it. The more economically prosperous a country or the more educationally advanced a country or society, the less they reproduce. Start seeing this about 34 years ago. Western Europe has a negative, I'm sorry, a very, very declining birth rate. They're only at like 1.2 children per man and woman in Italy. It takes 2.1 to break even. I began seeing this a few years ago. I started telling my ag audiences, hey, folks, this whole thing that we're going to be overpopulated, we might have a little bit of the opposite problem. Your read, Todd, when did you first even question it? Yeah, a few years ago, I think for, for me, it really started when I read that book that I referenced earlier, The Factfulness, and, and really started to think about that in a little bit different way. And, you know, and he discussed not just a linear, you know, projection on what's going to happen over the next 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 years. But what he talked about is, is why populations grow and how populations grow and how those uh, social dynamics change and what you referred to, you know, primarily the uh, the the fact that as populations get richer, um, also uh, more urban and uh, and more educated, they tend to reproduce at a lower rate. And so that fertility rate that really, you know, bizarrely, nobody really discusses when they're talking about this population explosion that, you know, some folks are still talking about coming. Uh, they don't talk about that. That really is a key factor, right? At what rate are we are we reproducing? And, and as you mentioned, in, in pretty much most of the developed world, that is below replacement rates. And in even much of the developing world, we're already seeing that start to shift. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about uh, when we were uh, – uh, putting together our program for the Business of Agriculture Success Group was that that day, that morning, our timing was great because China announced, or, or actually China didn't quite announce it yet, but there was a breaking story that China was about to announce their first population decline in, I think, 60 years. So really what we're seeing is not just in developed countries, not just in the West, but even in, in a lot of developing countries in Asia and Latin America, we're already seeing this shift. We're already below replacement rate. And, you know, that's going to be a, a, a huge problem moving forward. Yeah. So we're children of the whole uh, um, thing about we're never going to, you know, we're, we're going to have too many people and, and all that. And that's been a common discussion and belief for a very long time. But particularly, uh, it's it's only it's not even still becoming questioned enough. You still got um, some of the political folks in our country that are climate crusaders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They go on TV and say that they just couldn't possibly bear children because of the harm it will do the environment and how the there's too many people already. They're a little behind, but they also are predictive of what we already see happening. They're not having children. Now, in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's case, that's probably a net benefit for everybody. But aside from that, aside from that we're, we're talking about what these, these younger people in, in developed, you know, urbanized countries not having kids because of the harm for the environment. 
And it's really going to even accentuate and precipitate this thing even faster from what I'm seeing uh, where all of a sudden we thought, yeah, well, we were leveling off anyhow. And now we got a whole bunch of these 30 year old women that aren't uh, going to have children at all. Am I right? Yeah, this issue is, is accelerating, right? And it's accelerating for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you know, what we talked about, those trends towards urbanization, um, you know, uh, wealth, uh, you know, the, the world is getting wealthier very quickly. Um, it's urbanizing at a rapid rate. Um, you know, a lot of those things, and even some of those things you mentioned, like concern about the environment, is, is, is slowing things down. So millennials are are the perfect example. I mean, they are. There's going to be a big reduction in fertility rate as as the millennials start coming through the system. So, you know, this is getting this is getting worse. I mean, as we talk about, you know, this from an agriculture perspective, you know, we're talking about, you know, feeding, you know, nine billion people. You know, there's a good chance we don't ever get to nine billion people. And you know, the reality is, is we already produce enough food today to feed nine billion people. Right. We have a, an issue with food wastage and we have an issue with uh, distribution systems and, and mostly around political issues. But we already produce enough food today to feed probably peak human population on the planet. And so, you know, that is should be a signal that we are at a major tipping point as an industry that we need to really rethink the way we we approach these things. Yeah, so here's the thing that, uh, and there are folks right now that really, I, I know if you're watching or listening, and I, and I hope you're doing both because you can you can catch this on the YouTube channel, the Damian Mason channel on YouTube, as well as SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your audio uh, podcast. This is real kind of shocking information, and some folks will not believe it. There's somebody driving right now uh, in the countryside that just won't believe what you and I are saying, even though it's based on factual data from the books, from the studies, et cetera. But let's give them a couple. As Todd pointed out already, from a distribution issue, we don't feed everybody, but we have the product. We have enough to feed the 9 billion, even though we're not at 9 billion now. Uh, a, a pharmaceutical company that was so um, pushing this whole thing even championed the slogan about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, that said, feed the nine, feed the nine. It's all about this idea we're going to get to 9 billion. As Todd just pointed out, we're already agriculturally producing enough for 9 billion. So then the question becomes, all right, if we're there, um, that means we don't really need to make any more. And as pressure mounts from environmentalism to do a better job of containing food waste, that means that we not only need to produce, don't need to produce more, we probably could even produce a little less. Is that may come in here in the next five years? Yeah, yeah, I really think it is. And, and that's a major fundamental shift. Our entire system from policy to markets to really the the global economic uh system as it comes as it uh relates to global agri-trade is really based around this you know assumption that there's a shortage right that we're you know we're just barely keeping up and we, and we need to produce more so not only do we have those trends that you talked about just now where where we're going to be making improvements there we already have enough we're going to be making improvements you know we're are very close to be needing actually less. Um, and then if we look about and uh, look at places like China that are doing a better job of producing for themselves, those export opportunities for exporting countries are going to be fewer at some point in, in the future, not just because the population is going to be declining even in those markets, but also because they're doing a better job of reducing waste, improving the efficiency of their own production, and they're going to rely less on that. So we're talking about a major shift here that, that really I don't think anybody in our industry is fully prepared for. 
and and we're talking about a major shift on the production mindset and the, even the demand for production. And I'm talking about not 30. They've been thinking, oh, well, somewhere 100 years from now. No, we're talking it might be like five years from now. Uh, big point that I want to get to in case somebody is still saying, Damien, Todd, I appreciate your guys' stuff. You're pretty smart dudes. But you know what? Uh then people in other countries, they're still having a bunch of babies. Maybe not in New York City, but they have other. Let's give the reality. In Japan, there are 130 million people. And it's the oldest country on earth, meaning the oldest population, not the oldest fundamental society, the oldest population. It looks like in the next two decades or less, they're going to go down to 100 million people. So think about that. You're talking about 30% deduct of the population just because the young folks haven't been having babies at near the right amount or near the replacement amount for the last 20, 30 years. And grandma and grandpa are like 96. They die. There's no replacement. There are more. This is a pretty good stat from Daryl Bricker, author of Empty Planet. More adult, more adult diapers are sold each day in Japan than baby diapers in Japan. Another big stat here in the United States, we have more people over the age of 80 than we have under the age of two. And you're saying, well, yeah, because some people live from 80 to you know 95, but from two down, that's only two years. Yeah, but a lot of people that are 85 are already deceased. These are not just United States and Japan. China, as Todd pointed out, he has worked there on and off and spent hundreds of days there in his, in his career. When did you ever think that China was going to remember they were limiting their ability to their people to have babies until 2016. And now they're trying to encourage their people to have babies. This hasn't happened in five years. What's the next five years look like for China? Yeah, well, it's going to be really interesting. I think, uh, you know, there was some discussion fairly recently that the population might peak in China uh, somewhere in the next 10 to you know, five to 10 years, you know, depending on who you talk to. Now there's some people talking about the possibility that the population in China has already peaked or that we're going to be peaking in the next, you know, 12 months or something like that. So, yeah. you know, that's a huge thing too. It's another indication that, that not only is this, this, you know, this issue with over overpopulation not going to manifest itself, that, that we may be getting quicker to this uh, issue with underpopulation than, than anybody really projected. And so, if anything, I think this thing is moving faster than what people uh, anticipate, even some of the people that were on the front end of this uh, analysis. I mean, if you just look at, the, at, at this uh, Lancet study compared to the UN numbers, you know, so the Lancet is, is saying uh, in 2064, the global population is going to peak at about 9.7 billion. Well, the UN says at 2100, the global population is going to peak at 11.2. That's their official right. number, I think, and which they've got a range there, but 11.2. So we're talking about huge differences. We're talking about two and a half billion people difference in two very respected, you know, uh, studies. And the, mo the momentum is all for reducing, even the UN has been reducing their numbers, you know, albeit really slowly and by fairly insignificant numbers. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing the UN turn around pretty quickly because the tide is definitely turning here. And, and we're looking at, at, you know, around 9.7, according to the Lancet, uh, some of those guys like like Daryl is saying it's probably won't even get to nine, probably somewhere between eight and nine, maybe eight, eight and a half billion, um, somewhere around mid-century, and then a reduction. And so even the Lancet is saying 9.7 in 2064, a reduction to 8.8 .8 by 2100. Um, and so almost everybody agrees at this point 
that we're going to be in population decline sometime in the next 15 years or so. Um, significant population decline pretty much everywhere but Africa. You know, okay. Africa is going to be the only place it's growing. You said everyone agrees. No, they, they agree that we're going to slow down on growth. You and I, and some of us that have read a few other things and just keep looking at mega trends and micro trends are saying, no, 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 not just slow down on growth. We're going to absolutely see stuff that just almost is like, what the hell has happened in hundreds and hundreds of years? I never thought this was going to happen. I say it's coming fast. We're going to talk about what it means, whether you agree with me that it's going to happen faster, it's going to make your head spin, or whether you more with the United Nations that think, oh, well, we'll keep growing but at a slower rate. Then by the year 2100, it'll be 9.7 billion people. I think the UN is way off and almost verges on an activist organization, so that's a different story. Whether you agree with me or the UN, I want to just point out, these are going to have big, huge huge like industry changing effects on what we do in ag and we're going to cover two of the specific ones about feeding an older population and about getting the work to produce the food those are the two biggest we're going to cover after i remind you that harvest profit is the organization that sponsors this webcast this i'm sorry this podcast uh harvest profits a software solution that uh, really just looked at what they needed in the marketplace. Nick Horeb, the founder, said, you know what? I'm not even a software guy, but I know that there's a software demand in agriculture that can serve these people better. He started by seeing a need, a demand, and set out to fill it with a better product. Go to harvestprofit.com, read the articles he has written, and look and see if this product can benefit you and your operation to make it what it's supposed to be more profitable. All right, two big things. Um, who's going to do the work and then what's going to have to happen on our industry, which one you want to go with first immigration or food processing and the reality for us. Let's talk about immigration first. Immigration in my book, food fear, which I'm of course going to remind you, if you haven't picked up your copy, please do so at DamianMason.com. Don't go to Amazon. Bezos don't need money. He's just going to take a rake out of my money. And here I talk about a thing called immigration indigestion. And uh, I've had some people told me they were really surprised by that chapter because uh, they didn't know it was quite like that. About 76% of all uh, hired labor in agriculture is foreign-born. About half of all labor that's hired is not only foreign-born, but also here undocumented. They're here without their paperwork. Um, these are realities that we've known about for a long time. The meatpacking plants of uh, a foreign-born population that works in there, the livestock, particularly, and then everything that's especially crop, where you climb a tree, you, you, you cut off a celery stalk, whatever it is. These are realities that have been going for a long time. My grandfather came to this country and milked cows for other people as a foreign-born uh, immigrant, okay? This has been going on for 100 years, more than. But the thing is, those other countries aren't overflowing with people like they once were. And they may stop overflowing with people and not need to look to the United States as the place to go and cut celery or milk cows. Is that what's going to happen? And how soon, Todd Thurman? Well, I think we're going to start seeing major shifts very quickly. Even in the next five to 10 years, we're going to start to see these population flows change. So if you start looking at, you know, where are people coming from and where are they going to, you know, right now it's a, you know, in these uh, big economies, uh, 
it's it's not about attracting immigrants. It's about dealing with the influx of immigrants, right? And some countries have done a better job than others of, of dealing with uh, those influxes. I mean, you look at at, at uh, Europe, and they've had a massive influx of, of immigrants. So they've certainly not had any problem attracting immigrants, but they have had a real problem assimilating immigrants, and that's creating massive problems, you know, culturally, you know, in crime statistics and unemployment. I mean, it's a, it's a really big problem for the immigrants themselves and for the countries that, that are hosting them. And so, you know, what I've been trying to talk about is that in the near future, we're going to have to be thinking about immigration in a fundamentally different way. We're going to need to be thinking about how do we attract, retain, and assimilate these immigrants to fill these roles that we just don't have people for. So when we talk about that today, it's a major issue in agriculture. It's a major issue. We don't have people to do these jobs, right? But mainly what we're talking about is, you know, unskilled or low-skilled labor to do these jobs. We're going to be able to automate our way out of you know, at least some of that, right? Now, how quickly that happens, you know, I don't know. Uh, I suspect it's going to happen, you know, more quickly than most people do, but we're going to be able to automate our way out of that. But we still have a remaining issue that we have a declining population. If we're not able to attract immigrants from these fewer and fewer opportunities, these countries that have, have growing populations, it's going to be a problem. Uh, this labor availability is an issue everywhere. My clients in China, it's a 1.4 billion people, and their number one problem, other than animal health right now, is uh, being able to find and keep labor. So if you think about it that way, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major problem already, and it's going to continue to be a problem. But we're really moving from uh, an, a situation where employees say, why are these immigrants taking away our jobs? To one where employers are saying, why aren't these immigrants taking the jobs that we have available? Um, and so that's going to be a major shift. And, and the way we prepare for that over the next five to 10 years, prepare ourselves for that to be an attractive uh, destination for these types of immigrants that we need to bring in to do these jobs that are more highly skilled jobs, you know, jobs for the 21st century. Uh, this is going to require a fundamental shift. And this is a very politically charged issue, not just here in the U.S., where it's obviously a politically charged issue, but everywhere. It's one of the driving forces for politics in, in Europe right now as well, and really in, in a lot of the rest of the world. So those are issues that we're going to have to sort out. And I think those countries that do a good job of figuring that out and doing that right and are able to attract, retain, and assimilate those uh, immigrants are going to be quite successful in this new economy that emerges. And those that aren't able to do that are going to really struggle. You and I both um, uh, have looked at some of the other countries, you know, again, uh, grandson of immigrants here. So uh, it was always a thing that other countries overflowing and, you know, the idea of looking to the melting pot, all that stuff. And it's been good for agriculture. Actually, it's contributed to our, our agrarian success story that we had arable land and a river that went down the middle of the country and a lot of great things. But then we also we also had a growing population of people that were ascending in the economic, uh, quickly sometimes ascending. If this happens in other countries, then there's going to be less demand for those people to move, less push for those people to move. Uh, we learned from having Daryl on the Business of Ag Success Group uh, meeting last week, only 4% of the world's population is living in a different country than where they were born. That seemed very low to me, knowing that we look at what we hear about the border crisis and everybody wanting to you know, come to these. 
4% of the global population is living in a country they're not born in. That didn't seem like much. Then it makes you realize if the economy keeps getting better in these other countries and they have less population growth, meaning they're not getting pushed out, that number gets even less. So this isn't going to be just a U.S. prop. It's going to be other countries. Do you see a day, Todd, when there's competition to get immigration? To get yeah, absolutely. And I think that day is not too far off. And especially as we're looking at at the, the types of immigrants that we really want to attract from an economic standpoint, there's always going to be refugees. There's always going to be wars and, 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 and issues that create refugees. And, and obviously, we have to deal with that uh, from a policy and a political standpoint as well. But from a purely economic standpoint, I think there's going to be a very aggressive uh uh, recruitment of those those qualified immigrants to come in. And we have a lot of advantages here in the U.S. One of the biggest advantages that we have is we are a multicultural society. You know, we are a nation of immigrants. So this is not a, a, a foreign thing to us. You know, you think about some of the other countries that we've talked about, Russia and Japan come to mind, very anti-immigrant type countries. You know, they're very homogenous. They're very culturally and racially and ethnically homogenous and, and have historically not been uh, fond of the idea of bringing in a lot of immigrants. So it's a, it's a major problem for them. But even countries in Europe and North America that have been immigrant friendly, we all, we all have our issues. You know, we talked about in Europe, uh, their difficulty with assimilating uh, those immigrants. Here in the U.S., our biggest problem is we have a very porous southern border. And so, you know, our immigration policy is almost irrelevant because we have so many people that are coming across illegally that we can't control. Right. Um, I, you know, I think as we look for a model here, uh, we need to look to Canada. I um, mean, Canada's got a lot of the same advantages that we talked about. They don't have the poorest southern border that we have to deal with. Um, and so there's certainly some advantages that are built into their system. But that is a very immigrant-heavy population. 22% of the current population of uh, Canada was not born in Canada. And so this is a very significant deal. So just using the numbers I just gave you, you know, if only 4% of the entire global population is living in a country they were born in, and just to the north here in Canada, 22%, you know, you have five and a half times the, national, the global average is foreign born. And you're saying, well, is that good for them? Well, it seems to be their policy because they believe that it's that need for immigration that's going to help continue to make their economy uh, move forward. Um What's this mean for the people listening to this podcast? Uh, I can tell you that Todd works obviously a lot in the livestock industry. If you went to one of the big sow operations or a vertically integrated hog operation, how many of the employees are going to be foreign born? That depends on where you're at, but almost certainly 70% plus. And so there is a, obviously a demand out there. And we could say the same thing about dairy. You could say the same thing about meat processing. We'd say the same thing then obviously about the specialty crops. And I'm not talking about California like we always think of. You know, Florida has specialty crops. Alabama has specialty crops. There's places where we need hands to be doing, you know, fine, you know, handling stuff in agriculture. Um, automation's problem. You've been a big proponent of talking about automation is great. We've been doing it for a thousand years in agriculture. That's why we're not out walking behind the ox with a wooden plow. What's the other problem with automation, Todd? Well, the, the problem with automation, and, I, and it solves a lot of problems, right? It solves the problem of, of not 
uh, having people that are willing to do, you know, uh, manually intensive jobs, uh, dangerous jobs. I mean, there's a lot of advantages of automation, obviously. And we found an, a new reason to be interested in automation recently with uh, automation in packing plants, for example, to reduce the number of people in the case of a, of a human health issue uh, where we're concerned about having people, you know, large numbers of people close together in, in, in working conditions that certainly aren't ideal if we think about it in the context of a pandemic. So, so uh, I mean, uh, automation is going to be a part of the, the solution to labor challenges moving forward. But the problem, the main problem with automation is, is robots don't pay taxes, right? And so what we have here is not just a declining population, but a rapidly aging population. So we have, from a social standpoint, from a from a economic standpoint, we have more takers, the so people that are taking out of the system, than we have people that are putting into these systems. And so that's really, from a, a demographic standpoint, is the major challenge. And so if we you know overuse automation, you know that creates a problem because you know these 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 robots solve some problems, but they create others. And one of the, the problems that they create is that they don't contribute to uh, the support of the older generation. Well, speaking of the older generation, and so that you and I can hear for the last few minutes of this podcast, we've thrown a lot of stuff at people to think about and a lot of stuff that they haven't thought about here till, here till now, right? Think about this other reality. You got an aging population. In the United States of America, we right now, and you can look this up, our median age is around 38 years old. When I was born, it was in the mid to high 20s, like 27 years old. So our median age, half above, half below, has increased by over a decade in 50 years. If you're a young person, you're saying, what's a hell of a long time, 50 years? Well, <laughs> looking at the time horizon of humanity, it ain't a long time at all. We're getting older. What does that mean for ag? Well, again, we used to always think about produce, 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 make as much food as you can, and we're just going to keep eating more. I don't know that we're going to eat any more as a populace. Um, you know, 80-year-olds don't eat as much as 40-year-olds who don't eat as much as 20-year-olds. So what do you see when you look at the forward? Because I've got a few predictions. Well, here yours, Todd. What's it going to change in our shift here agriculturally? I've got two big ones. I want to hear yours. Well, I've got I've got some ideas. I think my biggest concern, though, is, is not necessarily the lack of ideas around how to deal with it. It's the fact that nobody's having this conversation. It's remarkable that we're in the process of, of a major shift in consumer dynamics, and nobody is talking about this. I haven't heard anybody on any of the social media outlets that I'm uh, involved in, you know, talking about how are we going to appeal to feeding an 80 plus year old population. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's that's the main thing I would like to get out is that we need to start having this conversation. We need to start talking about this. Certainly they're going to eat less. Um, I do think we have a model that we can look to. We can look at, at Japan uh, as, a, as a rapidly aging, declining population. So they're sort of on the leading edge of this. They're an advanced economy. And so what they have is a lot of you know fairly rich old people that are consumers. And what we see there is that that is a very uh, refined uh, demand especially as we look at it in terms of meat. They're willing to pay for quality. Uh, portion sizes are smaller, um, you know, some of those kind of things. So I think smaller portion sizes, uh, 
more focus on on quality, uh, safety, you know, any of those types of things, uh, I think we're going to be looking at, at shifts in that direction. And I think Japan g- gives us an idea of what that might look like. I would agree on a, a population that's got more education, more money, and there's less of them. It's about quality. But as far as it being for the old people, anybody that's ever gone with an old 87-year-old person to Shoney's at four in the afternoon for the dinner special, I'm not sure that we'd call that high quality. I mean, I'm just sure going to call that the, the highest end fare. Uh, portion sizes for sure are going to change. And then also because old people don't eat as much, old people tend to live by themselves. So they don't need to bring home as much food. Uh, there's going to be another part of it. I think that we need to actually start thinking about the, the food service industry. You know, the food service industry got rocked with the whole pandemic. They had been pretty well dialed in, man. They knew how to, the Cisco's and the, you know, huge food companies that deal with institutional food uh, um, providers. Um, man, they knew how to do that. And we got shifted like this. Like you said, you, Damien and Todd are talking about this, but the rest of agriculture is still out here thinking, hey, just keep making as much as you can. We'll throw her in a 50 pound bag and sell it somewhere. You got an aging population, not just here, but uh, all of the rest of the developed world. So we're talking about package sizes. We're talking about things that appeal to them. You know, all kidding aside, should you buy stock in Depends? I don't even know who makes Depends, but you're going to be selling more Depends than Pampers very likely in some of these countries. It's already happening in Japan. What about then the food? Uh, You know. Uh, old people eat differently than 25 to 55 year olds. And we are focused always demographically in that 25 to 54. That's where advertising and and the whole focus has always been. And we're going to continue to get out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that's really what we need to be talking about is, is really understanding those needs. I think you and I are, are trying to deduce based on uh, other things that we know, you know, what this population wants or what they need. Uh, the big part of the problem is, is very few people are out there asking them and nobody knows what they want or need because nobody's out there asking about them. Nobody's out there thinking about them. And at the same time, they're the fastest growing population in our country. And it's just mind boggling to me that, that that message doesn't seem to have gotten out. So if you're wondering where all this goes, Todd and I are going to have another one of these business of agriculture podcasts where we talk about appealing to the aging and or more affluent consumer. Because as much as I talk about the more affluent, I always say things like, hey, Whole Foods drives me crazy. But by God, they figured out how to get four and a half to five percent profit margins when Kroger's over there uh, with one point two or one point, you know, they, they got no margin at all on them. So there's a there's a reality there. We're going to talk about what all that means. Last thought. Aging population and way less population growth. What's it mean for everybody listening to this podcast, Todd? Uh, I think you just need to really start challenging a lot of your uh, uh, assumptions. And, and as we talked about very early on uh, when we first started this discussion, our systems are all built around this notion that we need to produce more and more and that there's a shortage. And, and so I really, I really hope that everybody that's listening to this, that's in the business of agriculture, is thinking about how that would change. If we have less demand, if we have a smaller population of people, if we have fewer consumers, you know, what does that look like? What changes for your business when we have fewer people, when we have older people? Uh, you know, there's, there's major shifts here, and I just really want people to be you know, thinking about that 
in in a lot of, in in different ways because it's going to have a profound impact on almost every aspect of agriculture from from the policy you know the government policy from the economics of agriculture uh, from you know dealing with consumers labor we touched on I mean it's hard to think of an aspect of agriculture that's not going to be profoundly affected by this you know megatrend. Yeah, there's, it's, you can't think of you can't think of anything that's going to be profoundly affected. Are we going to be fine? Sure, we're going to be fine. Obviously, people still got to eat. We're going to our product mix is going to change. Our production. Uh, this is my my closing. I gave you his two cents, or he gave you his two cents. My closing two cents are our product product mix is going to change um, because a, a an affluent consumer that we're not worried about making sure that they're not starving to death all of a sudden has different demands. Oh, well, if we're not starving, then I want my eggs to be, uh, you know, uh, from hens that are all petted and, uh, and wear little bows in their hair. I mean, it's, I know I'm being ridiculous, but there's the product mix and the production demands change because now the consumer can demand it. Um, prices are going to change a little bit because uh, we can't just say, oh, well, you don't like it. There's only so much of it. Uh, there's going to be a change in that. You know, the, the economics of it is going to work themselves out. And I think that we're going to probably have um, the environmental angle probably gets more of a seat at the table because now they've, they are going to believe that they are the reasons that we didn't overpopulate when the reality is economics, the reason we didn't overpopulate. So there'll be this environmental angle that see, we kept us from overpopulating. Now we just need to control energy production, food production, et cetera, et cetera. And the voting public will allow it. That's one of my big predictions moving forward. All right. Do you think your mom has warmed up after 40 more minutes with me? Or you think that we're just always going to have a problem? I will have to see. She'll tune in and I'll uh, get her feedback. <laughs> His name is Todd Thurman. He's a proprietor, founder of Swine Tech. He's my co-host and co-producer of the Business of Agriculture Success Group. I'd really like you to encourage you to, to consider joining it. For 99 bucks a month, you get great dialogue, insights, information, and a network of other ag professionals that you can communicate with that can help you succeed in tomorrow's agriculture. Next week, what do we got on the docket there? We're going to be talking about? Food waste. Food waste, another big one that's going to be affecting us. All right. He's Todd Thurman. If they want to find you, where do they do that? He's very present on LinkedIn. Yeah, uh, LinkedIn, uh, swinetext.com, S-W-I-N-E-T-E-X.com. Uh, all my contact information is there. That's probably the easiest way. Fantastic. I'm so glad he's here. I'm glad that we became partners on our on our production. This episode uh, brought to you by two sponsors. You're going to hear about the one as soon as I hang up, and that's Land Trust. The other one I want you to remind you of is Harvest Profit. Go to harvestprofit.com. Check out their software package and see if it will work for you. I've turned on a bunch of my listeners, a bunch of my cohorts in ag. If they're doing it, you can try it too. It might make you what you're supposed to be more profitable. Go to harvestprofit.com for a free 14-day trial. All right, man. Till next time, Todd Thurman. Thanks, Damien. Thank you. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture. Thank you for tuning into the Business of Agriculture podcast sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to landtrust.com BOA are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000.